welcome to Food Network Obsessed. This is the podcast where we dish on all things Food Network with your favorite Food Network stars. I'm your host, Jamie Sire, and today we have a fierce competitor on the podcast to talk about her maverick personality, how being a military brat shaped her, and making her mark on the Boston food scene. She's a chef, restaurateur, James Beard Award nominee for Best Chef in America three years in a row, and your season three winner of Tournament of Champions, it's Tiffany Faison. Tiffany, welcome to the podcast. And more importantly, congratulations. Yay! Thanks, Jamie. I'm psyched to be here. And it's nice to like let the world know. So, you know, obviously I've known for a little while and it's just been like, keep it tight, keep it shut. So it's yeah, nice yeah. to finally kind of shout it from the rooftops. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in case uh, anyone listening does not know, you are the winner of Tournament of Champions Season 3. So I have a very important question for you. Where is the championship belt right now? Uh, It's in my apartment right now. (laughs) It's been like tucked in the second bedroom of my apartment that's like half shoe room. It's my Peloton, which is really just like a really expensive clothes hanger. (laughs) It's like in the closet like sort of in the corner. So, cause I have, I've been, I have I've had to hide it. Yeah. So I can't like, can't be in the world. And if people come over to my house, it can't be like out, out on display. Yeah. 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 But now you can have it out. Now- I mean, are you going to be, are you going to be wearing it around town? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Please. Are you kidding? It's the only, I'm just going to wear just that. Just walk <laughs> down the street. Just ask me any questions you need. I love it. I love it. Well, you are also the third woman to win TOC in its three seasons, yep. uh, following in the footsteps of Brooke Williamson, Manit Shohan. And, and you actually had to go through both of them to earn this title, which I'm sure made it that much sweeter. And harder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, what's it like being part of that trio of, of champions now? I mean, first of all, I adore them both. And they're both, you know, they're friends, um, mm-hmm. really good friends. And we've known each other for a long time. We've been moving in concentric circles for a really long time. And so it's, I mean, it feels incredible to join their company, obviously. It's extraordinary that it's three women, still remains three women. Yeah. I think there's something to be really said for that and probably a larger conversation that's important to have about, about bias, frankly, right? Like it's blind judging. They can't see who we are. And it cannot be a coincidence that this is maybe the first major cooking competition where it's been queen slayers, like three Mm-hmm. you know, major competitions in a row. Like there's, there's something about removing implicit bias that I think is really helpful. No, I mean, I think that's one of the beautiful things about this show and the format that is so brilliant because it is, it is like completely blind. They don't have any idea who's cooking and, and, and you guys don't know who's judging either. So right. I think it kind of, it kind of goes both ways. Yeah. We can't play. Neither of us can play to each other. Yeah. Right. Like, so they can't assume that they know who's here. And even I think at some point, you know, the judges that have been returned judges probably know that there are certain people that are coming back for sure. But then, you know, we went from 16 to 32. There's no mm. way you can know who's out there. And then we don't obviously know who the judges are. We know who some of them might be, but I may get Waxman one day. I may get Nancy Silverton another day. I may get whoever else. Like, And I think, you know, the cooking, the level of chef on the show these aren't people who, and you see it in other competitions where they start cooking for what they know a chef likes. Mm-hmm. I don't think that happens anyway. I think we're also very solidly set in who we are as chefs and what our food is that there's no, there's no doing that anyway. 
Yeah, no, I think it's awesome. I, I mean, I loved watching all of you, you know, compete and and win your respective seasons. And as you mentioned, you and you and Manit are great friends, um, fellow chop judges. Uh, when she found out she was facing you, she literally said, "I'm afraid of her." Uh, <laughs> I mean, did that flip your mindset at all? No, we've talked about it. Like she and I talk about it that we've like. <laughs> We feared the battle. We knew it would come one day. <laughs> we had never gone against each other at Chop. Like we've done Beat the Judge and, you know, like uh, Gauntlet, stuff like that. But we've never gone head to head. And we knew at some point the cards were going to align and stars align and the cards would come up and we'd have to do it. So it's something that we'd sort of joked about for a long time. I think we were equally terrified to go up against each other. <laughs> so, yeah, we we had talked about it. You had talked about it. And what was your feeling going up against her? Like, obviously, knowing her strengths, her weaknesses. And, and were you able to to play to that at all? Or are you just focused on doing your own thing at that point? You have to just focus on doing you. I think the minute you look up and start really worrying about what someone else is doing, you lose focus. I've never, I don't know. It's funny. Like I, you can, you know, there's a little bit of like being conscious of what your competitor's doing, but they're going to do what they're going to do. And the caliber of stuff here, you just have to be on your game. So obviously I know Manit's flavors are extraordinary and second to none. And her like Indian lexicon is so (laughs) deep and wide, but it's not just that she can pull out Chinese food. She can pull out all kinds of like South American food, Mexican food. Like there's not a language she doesn't speak culinarily. So, you know, I know she's got that. She also knows that I've, you know, I'm pretty got multiple languages in my culinary arsenal as well. So we just knew it was going to be a bad. Yeah, and it was. And I I think my favorite thing about watching Manit is just like listening to her trash talk. She's so sweet until she's like not. (laughs) You have no idea. She comes in like she's Mary Poppins, (laughs) but that umbrella is a knife. She'll just like, and she's so funny because she's like, we tease her all the time. Like, we'll we'll say like really inappropriate things around her. And she's like, oh my God, like we're like, Monique, shut your ears. And she's like, why do you guys always think I'm like this little petite fleur? And I was like, because in some ways you are, but you are, she's as crass and as ridiculous as the rest of us. Don't be fooled. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Well, you also, as we mentioned, had to compete against Brooke in the final match. And she's, I mean, she's been in all three of of the finales, which is crazy. So like knowing that, what was your mindset going in? Again, just do make mm-hmm. focus, like make sure that I'm, I'm doing the food that I need to do to succeed and to win and just be proud of what I put out at the end of the day. You know, she's, she got a lot of practice in that final round. So she knows how to navigate that. And, you know, there's, there's nothing you can do besides just go to your arsenal, figure out how to show up the best you possibly can for yourself. And don't look on the other side of that stadium, like just focus on what you do. And if you are good enough on that day, you win. And if you're not, you don't. Yeah. It's that simple <laughs> and that hard. What what made you decide to return after competing on season two? Oh, we're all just like for gluttons. <laughs> for, the for the punishment. <laughs> it's also just the most fun, right? Like you watch it and it is so hard and everything leading up to it. Like even just like getting on the plane to go, I'm always like, like, <laughs> why am I doing this? <laughs> like you start questioning everything again, but you know, getting up to like everything that comes before the randomizer stops is just like actually awful. It's awful. <laughs> like, like your body starts to do things that you're like, I didn't know you were capable of doing that. Please stay with me. Don't pass out. Don't like, don't do anything like that's going to embarrass me. And then once that wheel stops, like you go into it's fight or flight and you go into fight mode and adrenaline takes over. And then frankly, it is the most fun thing ever for like whatever that period of time is. 
And then the fun stops and you have to like listen to people talk about food and, you know, get judged by your, your idols and your heroes. And then it goes back to being awful. Again. <laughs> well, speaking of that awful part and that randomizer that everybody, you know, cringes at, uh, your first challenge was against Brian Voltaggio and the episode appropriately titled The Randomizer's Revenge. Um, you were given yeah. ground bison, broccolini, a grain mill, crispy, and 35 minutes. And I know you joke that you still bring up the randomizer uh, with your therapist, but I mean, like, what is your strategy or is there no strategy at all? There's no strategy. Um, I think, you know, a lot of us will just go through flavor profiles that we have in our heads and things that we know work and and if those things are able to kind of work into the challenge and there's something that's bouncing around your head, then great. If not, sometimes the wheel just lands and it's like, well, that's, that's not going to work. And the ingredients and style and um, equipment dictate otherwise. And so you just have to scrap everything. You know, the fear is that it stops and nothing comes mm -hmm. and that hasn't come yet, but <laughs> you know, you never know. Look, I don't think the randomizer in the first round was the hardest. Mm -hmm. It was not the easiest, but it was not like, I don't feel like I got really hamstrung by it. Mm -hmm. And I think Brian would probably say the same thing. Ground bison, not great. You just have to work a ton of fat into it because it's super, super lean. Grain mill, ultimately, we I think we both used it as a spice grinder, which was the right thing to do. Um, what you don't see in that episode is me trying to throw like pine nuts in it at first, like an idiot. And pine nuts have too much fat. Like they're mm -hmm. not going to go through that thing. So that's when I'm like pushing my hand through. I'm like trying to get pine nuts through it. And I was like, ah, it's not going to work. So there is a little bit of like that just messing around with equipment that can happen. But I don't think it was that hard. I mean, when I think Manit and Eric Ajapong got like oyster soup and sandwich carbonator, I was oh, like, that was rough. <laughs> <laughs> and you start, you know, we, when we walk in and out, we see certain things that are maybe on the randomizer. And then, you know, as we come in and out of battles, things come off and things go back on that we haven't seen. So everyone, you know, it's funny because production's like, look straight, do not look over there because they need <laughs> us like walking in and talking to guy. And we're like, everyone's like laser focused on what's on that wheel. And you see soup and sandwich and you're just like, you light no. all the candles at night. And you're like, <laughs> please God, please God, no soup and sandwich. Yeah, no, it definitely. I mean, it definitely got, uh, you know, increasingly harder. And obviously, mm -hmm. that was by design. And in, in that finale, you know, you and Brooke had such a strong reaction when the randomizer landed on on natto. Um, and, and for those unfamiliar with the ingredient, why did you have the reaction that you did? Well, natto is fermented Japanese soybean. It is literally it has the consistency of snot and like tape mm -hmm. all at the same time. So you like can't get it off your hands and it's snotty. It has a funky like blue cheese flavor to it. So it's just like, if you think you understand, like, you know, you go to soybean land and you're like, oh, soy sauce or like tamari, um, miso, anything that can be kind of derived from soybeans. This isn't it. I mean, it's the same ingredient initially, but it's gross. Uh, there are people who are natto aficionados. I'm not to mm -hmm. one of them. Um, <laughs> it's just a tough ingredient to work with. And that's, you know, vegetable got taken off of mm -hmm. the wheel and it was like, well, it could be anything. And it was like, what does anything mean? It's like, oh, oh, awful. You mean oh, like that. anything awful. Okay, great. Um, but in addition to that, it was also whole rabbit. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a, co that's a combo for sure. That's a combo. <laughs> and then one ingredient, three ways. Yeah. So, and it had, that had to be rabbit. They were clear about that. Um, it, yeah, that was tough. That's, I mean, so I have this theory, I don't know. Let me know what you think about it. I feel like whenever one of the contestants like s makes a comment about something that they see on the randomizer before a guy spins it, 
if it's like a negative comment, somehow the randomizer, like I put somehow in quotes, like lands on that ingredient. Like, is there somebody behind there? Like, you know, I'm picturing like the Wizard of Oz back there. I know. Someone pulling levers and stuff. (laughs) I was convinced that there's like someone back there that stops it. There's not. I've seen behind the thing. There's no way to stop it back there. It's like, um, I mean, it's created for the show. Obviously, it is not a high tech piece of equipment, right? <laughs> like I've I've seen the back of it, and there's no there's no Oz back there. Like okay. it's just like the back of a you know giant thing that's constructed. So there's no way to stop it back there. Yeah, I think it's just the power of like sheer will <laughs> in working in the wrong direction. That's why I I said like I I saw soup and sandwich, and I was like not gonna say it out loud. Don't say was, it out loud. <laughs> I said muscles last season. I was like I don't and I don't know what an air fryer was, and it was like. That's what you got. You just you spoke it into existence. The randomizer yeah. is much more powerful, I think, than we than we all realize. Um, it's a living, breathing thing. <laughs> what was the hardest challenge you faced this season? Was it the finale? Yeah. I mean, it's the finale for a thousand reasons. You've gotten so far down the road. You want it so bad. You can taste it at that point. It was an inherently difficult challenge just through the the you know draw of the randomizer. Um, the pressure that's on. Like, I remember that morning getting to set and I couldn't get warm. Mm. I mean, it wasn't like a warm day, but I was like bundled up and I had heat warmers in my pockets. And like, you know, I was going through like all of these like mental exercises, like breathing and trying to, you know, regulate myself and keep my heartbeat. And it's just, it's the pressure of it is extraordinary. Yeah. I had to like talk to a really good friend who's um, a therapist and like, you know, she was like, okay, well, your body thinks it's dying. Start oh. <laughs> here, tell your body it's not dying and work backwards. And like, that was really helpful, frankly. Okay. Well, yeah, it was the pressure it, of it. It's yeah. Last round. No, that's, I mean, that's wild that it, it, you had such a like visceral reaction. We all do. A, yeah. yeah. Uh, who were you the most nervous to compete against? I mean, I think you just take every round as it comes. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I picked, when I drew Brian out of the gate, I was like, well, what's the point of being a three seed if the six seed is Brian <laughs> Voltaggio? Like, that stinks. Like, everyone's really talented. There's no one there. You know, one of the things I think that's so compelling and that's worked so well in the show is that anyone can win. Mm-hmm. Like, genuinely, anyone there can win. Also, anyone there can lose. We can all have a rough day. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes the show so brilliant and unpredictable and exciting. Manit. Yeah. Uh, for a couple of reasons. I mean, both Brooke and Manit. Minnie, because I love her so much and, and I know her flavors are so, so strong. And Brooke's just an assassin. She'll just pull like a <laughs> knife out of the back of her pocket and shank you as she walks by. And like, what happened? I don't know what happened. So I don't know. I'm bleeding. Yeah. Just the sheer experience that she has in the arena. Yeah. Like, yeah. You mentioned the seeding. Um, you were a three seed this year, as you mentioned. Do you think that was an accurate, you know, placement for you? I think it was appropriate. Yeah. I mean, anything higher, I would have been like, well, I don't know if I really like, deserve that. Like, you know, so much of it comes off of like TOC wins. And, and I know it's an amalgamation of a lot of things, but, you know, I, I thought it was appropriate for sure. Like coming in from season two as like a, as a plan and making it into like, I think the final eight, I thought three was totally appropriate. So I wasn't like, oh, I felt screwed or like it should have been higher. I would have been not surprised if it was lower frankly. Mm. And again, like it's the thing that we always, you know, guy says when we're in there, you don't like it, change it. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. change it. You're going back next year as the onesie. Are, are we, I mean, you're going to go back next year, right? You have to defend. I don't think that you're allowed to not come. <laughs> guy would so, not allow that. Oh no, no. He'll like show up at your door. <laughs> He'll like, be like, here, let's your go. He's like, I packed your car. I packed your bag for you. We're going. <laughs> Get in the car. <laughs> 
when you won and were allowed to share, who was the per- first person you told? The first person I told was actually um, my friend Liz, who was working, who was, she was, is amazing and was with me the entire time mm. talking me through it and just like, she's a therapist and she was like talking through like the mechanics of like what was happening to my body and, and how to calm down my brain and how to regulate and how to bring my sort of heartbeat down when I needed to. And, and just like an incredible coach. She Mm -hmm. really was just a great coach on the other side. And it's so funny. She didn't tell me until after it was all over, but she was like, I was a nervous wreck. (laughs) She was like, I'm trying to like give you all this, like, like these helpful hints and tips and things that can like, you know, move you through this in a, in a more regulated way. But you know, we would get off the phone and she was just, I, she was a wreck until, um, we got through it. I won. So. All right. Well, yeah. she was, she was your, uh, secret weapon or your, your lucky rabbit's foot or something she like was. that. She was, she was. Yeah. <laughs> well, you are known, uh, as being a, a tenacious and intense competitor, whether, you know, top chef, chop tournament of champions, where does that intensity come from? Do you think? I don't know. I think you're born with it. I think it really is like innate to who you are. I was, I hate being bad at things. Mm. I either get good Same. or I get out. Yeah. So <laughs> like I was an all-American cheerleader when I was younger. And Amazing. then I was a college debater and, you know, just I won the national title my first year out. And then I then I blew it the second year because I didn't work as hard. And so that was a life lesson that I never, ever let go of. <laughs> so, you know, talent, it's the, what is it? Talent, work beats talent when the talent doesn't work. Like yeah. it has to be both work and talent. And so I don't know, it's just baked in. I think I've always understood that nothing would ever be given to me. If I wanted something, I had to go get it, work for it, go grab it and not be afraid to do that. And that's easier said than done, but Mm -hmm. that's been my whole life. Yeah. I mean, I saw an interview, you know, with Boston Magazine that you did back in 2019 and you revealed that you had recently taken a personality test that that labeled you as a maverick, um, which, by the way, can be described as, you know, one interested in being creative, innovative, always wanting to do something new, looking at situations from a different angle. Also, you know, perseverance and, and goals in mind. You know, why is that such an accurate description of who you are? Yeah, it fit like a glove. I was in a room with like probably 50 people and there were two mavericks in that test. And I was like, hi. And I knew the other one. I was like, yep, <laughs> I see you. I think there's something about there are like creative people in the world and then there are tenacious people in the world. And sometimes those don't always match up. And then even with that, there's like concentric circles of like creativity, tenacity, work ethic. And so for me, it's, it's about those three things mashing up in a way that like, I don't know. I just, it just creates who I am and I wouldn't know how to stop it or slow it down. I mean, I'm like a hundred or I'm zero, right? Like I'm like a hundred or I'm asleep. Like there's kind of like very little middle ground. So, and I'm working on that in my life and kind of trying to find a a little more like 75% when I'm not working. But I think it's those three things. I think it's a concentric circle of those three things that are, I think innate, like inherent to who I am. And then my life has reinforced them, right? Like going back and not winning the national title the second year, I was like, oh, all right, you don't want to work. You slip back, you don't win, right? Like, and so it's really taking all of those little moments of lessons and being a student and being aware of your surroundings and wanting to kind of push things forward creatively and having that need inside of you. And then also like, you have to break the door down in order to be able to do that. You can't just sit and like have creative dreams and be like one day. It's like, no, you have to create a vessel and way forward. And then you have to be able to maintain that. And the only way to do that is work. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I know you were you were born in Germany as well and, and moved around a lot growing up 
in a in a military family. How do you think that that transient nature of your childhood kind of molded your perspective, who you are today, and and some of these traits we're talking about too? Great question, Jamie. A couple ways. I think there's some negative ways and there's some positive ways, right? I used to have this alarm that went off in me like every two or three years, like because we'd move so frequently. Mm. That was like I would need to go and I would just need to like drop whatever I was doing, move to another city, and I did that for a long time, and it served me well. I mean, being younger and learning different restaurants and cooking different places. And then at some point when it was time to settle down, it was really hard to, I had to be very intentional about understanding that, that alarm clock was going off and calming it down and working myself through like, no, I'm, I'm here and I'm staying here. And then it would show up in different ways where like, I would like let friendships go or like mm-hmm. just things that were like, it was like something was resetting in me and I had to really make sure that it wasn't having negative consequences in my life. Like, it's not a friend I want to let go. It's not like I'm firing a friend. It's just like, oh, I need to work harder at like maintaining and, and cultivating this relationship. I'm inherently just letting it kind of slip away because this is the pattern. So that's mostly negative, but there's a lot of positive ways, like being able to be imminently adaptable, right? Like you can drop me into almost anything and I'll figure out a way to either survive or get comfortable or get myself the hell out of there. (laughs) (laughs) Fight or flight. um, Fighter. Yeah. Fight, flight, or move in. (laughs) And so, you know, I think it's a, a bunch of those things. And also just being like really conscious and sensitive and aware of cultural differences, Mm. like wherever you are, whether that's, you know, Germany, Greece, California, Texas, Oklahoma, whatever it might be, things change around you. And I think becoming more sensitive and aware of how people think, function and move in the world around you is really important. How did it shape your, your culinary point of view as well? I mean, I, we were, um, I don't know if we were adventurous, adventurous eaters as a family, but we were always in environments in like people's homes. And like, you know, we lived on a farm in Germany with our, our landlords had like a dairy farm. And so we always went to their house and ate on Sundays and we would go and work on the farm in the morning. And then we got home from school, we'd work on the farm, whatever they were having, we would eat with them. And then, you know, we would go to neighbor's weddings and whether it was, you know, again, Germany, Greece, wherever it is that we were, we had a rule in my family. You don't have to like it, but you do have to try it. Mm. And so that is ultimately like being hospitable as a guest. And so just keeping an open mind and there was no like, Ooh, I don't like that before you tried it. There was those, those just weren't, it wasn't kind. So that was not allowed in our home. So that, I think just being exposed to stuff, you don't know when you grow up that way, you don't even know how much stuff is coming at you. That's different. And that's like kind of moving the culinary needle for you before you even like, I mean, and start cooking until I was like 23. So Up next, Tiffany talks about her journey to becoming a chef and later reveals her favorite food cities and what it's like to be a judge on Chopped. So stick around. Well, let's talk about that because I know your first food job was working in a 50s diner making milkshakes. Um, I, I, I would imagine that wasn't the experience that, that led to your culinary career that we we see now. But what was the inspiration? You know, you said, you, I mean, yeah, yeah, it was part of it. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah. Part of it was the what I took away from that experience was like, I mean, I would make these like gross desserts. Everything was kind of store bought. We would make milkshakes there and it, they were great. Um, but it was like, you know, ready whip or whatever whipped cream. Mm-hmm. And I would like put way too much on and like take it to a table, like too many cherries on top, too much chocolate sauce, like, just, you know, kind of gross ingredients, but 
Um, but the whole table would be like, wow, it's amazing. And so that like lighting people up and making them feel good and making them feel special. Like that was where it all started. It was like, oh, okay. That's like, I just plugged right into that. It's like, I can make people feel like this. Like I can light people up with like what I deliver to their table. And so front of the house for a really long time. And then I ultimately got to a place where I, it was right after September 11th and I was managing a bar and I, I wanted to stay in the industry. I didn't, we didn't understand bars in the way that we do now in terms of the creativity of where they're at. And there certainly wasn't a lot of place for women behind bars where you have a future and it doesn't look like you're this old, you know, bar hag or whatever, <laughs> for lack of a, you know, better term and a terrible one to put in place. I mean, it's just like, it's a really random story, but I was bar managing at the Ritz Carlton and I gave my notice after September 11th and ended up taking like a busser job and then running food after that in the same restaurant. And I just watched the kitchen and asked if I could learn. And this is a hundred percent, not the Cinderella story where I just like walked into the kitchen and was amazing. And I like, knew what <laughs> I was just doing. a prodigy. I was, no, I was a disaster. I was just like, like boring a hole through the ground, like spinning around. Like what were you doing that was so bad? Oh, I remember like uh, very clearly my chef then, who's a, still a really good friend of mine. I was cutting an onion and he looked at me and he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, how do you not know how to cut an onion? And I was like, kind of an asshole. And I was like, how would I? Like, you asked for this job. Like, Tiffany, you asked for this job. You don't get to pop off. So I also learned some some lessons about hierarchies in kitchens. But like when you work a station, you have a lot of times you have like drop-in coolers, like a pizza prep or whatever, where there's like six pans and nine pans and things are lined up and all of your mise en place is in there. I didn't know that you could like move those things around, like to make your life easier. I, I had no idea. I was like, oh, like, I mean, I took them out to clean them every night, but it didn't occur to me that like, this is your station. You can make it easier for yourself. And, I mean, just stuff like that for like, I don't know, year, year and a half. Or it was just like, you know, I, I was like a dodo bird, but there is something that I was really bad at first. And it was, I promised myself I was living in Boston and I'd been here for, I don't know, maybe a little just shy of a year, maybe a year. And I was like really homesick and I'd moved here from San Francisco and I was really bad at cooking and I made a deal with myself. I was really miserable and I made a deal with myself. Like once I didn't hate it here and once I didn't suck at my job, I could leave. Mm. I could go back to San Francisco or wherever it is that I wanted to go. And I don't know, I looked up like a couple of years later and I loved it and it, I really enjoyed cooking and started really falling in love with that. And it like given me this life, right? Like I stopped, I stopped fighting it. Mm-hmm. and leaned into it. And, um, and it met me more than halfway. Yeah. I mean, you talked earlier about, you know, hating being bad at things. Did that come into play as well? I'm sure it did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wanted to quit every day. Like I just was like, I got to either get better at this or I got to quit. And the getting better at it, cooking is tough. Like it takes a long time to get good at cooking. And I, I didn't get good quick. I just stopped sucking. Kind of quick. Like, I mean, sometimes I that's more important, honestly. Yeah. It just needed it not to hurt every night. I need to like not go down in flames every night and not like, you know, need to be bailed out of my station and not like have to show up three hours early off the clock to like get my prep done. And, you know, I just wasn't inherently fast at stuff and I had no muscle memory and no, there wasn't like, you know, I'd get on my station and I couldn't like prep four things at a time. I just couldn't. And I, it took a while to be, be able to build up to that and it took like two years. Yeah. What, what about Boston, you know, made you want to stay? It's such a great city. It's a challenging city in a lot of ways. Like Bostonians can be a little tough. <laughs> it's very hard to break in here. There's like a bit of a fence kind of built around 
sometimes the city and sometimes people's hearts and sometimes both. Once that fence is gone, you're theirs and they don't let you go and they will have your back and support you and be like your biggest cheerleaders and defenders. And so that, that happened for me. I looked up and I had made really close friendships with people that um, I valued really deeply and, and loved and were from here. And there was a sense of like, you're ours now. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I just kind of allowed that to happen which felt really nice. Yeah. They, they adopted you and, and they did. Yeah. <laughs> and mean, then, and then I adopted them. Yeah. No, I yeah. love that. That's really beautiful. Um, and, and by the way, you know, obviously you've, you've made your mark there, uh, on the culinary scene with your restaurants. And I know you, you recently opened three new concepts at high street place food hall. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they include bubble bath, a champagne and wine bar with a champagne vending machine and fancy hot dogs. Yep. And popcorn. Okay. Well, in on that. Um, Teneroni's yes. 70s and 80s throwback pizza and grinder shop. Yes. Dive bar, a seafood spot where New Orleans, New Orleans meets New Coastal New England. Yeah. It's sort of like a north-south water fight. Okay. So all three of these sound like my dream. Um, so <laughs> I feel like we I know. I feel like we'd be good friends. Uh, what is your process, though, when it comes to you know conceptualizing a new restaurant, bringing it to life? It's an interesting question and I'm not sure one I can answer like straightforward. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's a space. I walk in the space. I'm like, oh, got it. This is what you need to be. And it comes really quickly. If it doesn't come quickly, I don't chase it. Mm. Like if it doesn't sort of wash over me and like there's things that are here, like that are filed that I want to do. If I can't find the space or it doesn't, I, not that these things come easy. None of them come easy, but there's a fight for it. Like I know better now. I know to back away and mm-hmm. to walk away. And um, and there's always going to be another space. There's always going to be another deal. And it's a little bit like car shopping. Like you can't be all in on one thing. Like you can't, you know, you can't like attach yourself to things emotionally. So it starts with space and it starts with deal. You can't make a good restaurant out of a bad deal. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I used to be this like, one day I'll put my bespoke restaurant in like an old firehouse. And girl, please. Like that's... <laughs> Nope, 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 nope. Um, so it's a lot about location and opportunity and the deal. Um, and then knowing that the neighborhood and the city is right for what it is that you want to do and knowing that it's going to, has the potential to work in the location that you're putting it in. And then with that, there's like a bunch of, you know, branding and conceptualizing and stuff that happens. That's really, really fun stuff. And then there's just some like juju, right? Like it works or it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And, um, sometimes it doesn't, I don't know that I've, totally experienced that yet. I've had to really retool things where it's like, okay, I thought this was going to work this way. And I say this a lot. Opening restaurants is like having kids, not that I have kids, (laughs) but you have all these hopes and dreams for them. Ultimately, they're going to show you what they need to be. And if you don't let them, you're going to strangle them. Hmm. And you have to like, has to be a balance of like, I'm going to raise you right, but you also need to be who you are. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the, the Boston food scene? So interesting. Tight. Um, sometimes a little insular, a little more insular than I'd like it to be. I think we're always growing. I would like to see so much more young talent come through the city. I I think it's a city that's frankly been based on the talent of mostly women. Mm. Jody Adams, Barbara Lynch, Lady Shire, like Susie Regis, people that have built, like literally built this city. Um, so that is always like a badge of huge honor that I get to live and work in this city and, any success I have is on their shoulders. And I know that and innovative in a lot of ways. I think there's, um, we have like the most pristine ingredients, like, you know, we catch tuna here and send it to Japan and then buy it back from Japan. (laughs) 
Really? Like, mm, yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Happens all the time. But, you know, pristine ingredients. And I think there's things I want for the city um, that I, I think I've worked really hard to do in my company. I want more fun in the city. I mm-hmm. think sometimes as Bostonians, we can take ourselves a little too seriously. And I, um, that's not what dining is for me. It should be, it should always be fun. <laughs> it shouldn't yeah. be like the, the sports teams and, and, and people's living and dying by those in Boston. <laughs> I mean, that, but that's fun. But no, that but that's, fun. that's Boston. That's Boston. <laughs> that's, you us. Know. that's us. That yeah. is true. Uh, what are some of your favorite spots to eat in Boston besides your own, of course, besides my own? Um, I love Sarma in Somerville. I think Cassie, um, Prima is one of the best chefs in the city and it's Turkish by way of small plates and tons of like inventive flavors. And I love, love, love her spot. I love Cafe Sushi. Uh, Seiji Amora is like, I think one of the most talented sushi chefs in the city, young guy, beautiful fish, unbelievable creativity. My friend Alyssa just opened um, the Koji Club, which is a sake bar. Mm. And Alston, it's our first uh, official sake bar and she's killing it. It's so <laughs> lovely and sweet and perfect. And then those are some of my favorites right now. That's awesome. What about other favorite other favorite food cities as somebody that's lived a lot of places? Oh, um, I mean, all of them. The obvious ones, I'll just like leave like New York, LA, Chicago. We'll put them aside. Uh, Portland, yep. both Oregon and Maine, frankly, both incredible food cities like in Pacific Northwest, like Renee Erickson stuff. Like I worship her. Like I just love what she does. I watch her every time I'm there. I eat what she's like, wherever she's whatever she's doing, wherever she's doing it. Like she puts together the most gorgeous restaurants with menus that just everything just seamlessly comes together. I think she's just so brilliant. Places that I think surprise me. And I love always Austin for tacos. Mm. Like I just like taco culture in Austin yeah. always just slays me. I love it. And barbecue. <laughs> yeah. Also, um, I leave there always like 15 pounds heavier. I'm like, well, or, or barbecue tacos too. <laughs> barbecue tacos. Also that. Yeah. LA's it's interesting. Like I put LA in the top three just so casually there, but I lived there in 2007 and it was not the same city that it is now. Mm-hmm. It has really grown and become such a formidable force in like the culinary lexicon of this country in so many ways. Like Korean food is outstanding. Mexican food is unbelievable. Obviously like there's such a strong Japanese community there. Some of the best sushi in the country. It's just, it's really formidable. And it, it's crazy that it wasn't before. It's, it was fine before. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember Tom Clicky, like talking to him in 2007 and he was like, open something here, open something here. And I was like, oh, I want to live in LA. But, um, <laughs> but from there, it's just like this incredible growth. Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of places that I don't, when I'm traveling, I will find mm-hmm. places to go. Minneapolis, St. Paul has a really incredible South Asian community. Like you wouldn't think so. And it's just, ridiculous. It's Hmong people. And there's like a huge area. It's like a shopping area with a bunch of like food stalls mm. that is very reminiscent of Southeast Asia yep. and it's all Hmong food and it's unbelievably good. I love that. No, I, and thank you for sharing because I know people love, you know, listening to chefs and, and hearing some of their favorite places to eat, f- favorite cities. So that's always a highlight as well. Uh, we obviously talked about TOC a lot, but you clearly make regular appearances as a judge on Chopped as well. When you watch these contestants and having obviously been one yourself, do you find you're better able to relate to them and and provide them with the feedback that they need? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think cooking competitively allows you to be a better judge. And I think being a judge allows you to cook better competitively. So I think they both serve each other pretty well. It's 
you know, it, they come with their whole hearts, like 90% of the time. Like every once in a while, there's like someone that's like a complete jerk. They're just like, <laughs> sit down. Like, I'm going to tell you a few things. Like, sit down. check yourself. <laughs> yeah, check yourself. And it's not in front of me necessarily, but like, I'll be sitting with like Manit and Scott or Amanda or like Chris. And I'm just like, do you know who you're talking to like that? <laughs> it's like, are you, are you serious? And mostly it's just nerves and insecurity, but I don't care. Like, I don't know what your mom told you, but my nerves and insecurity never let me like act a fool in front of people and like, be disrespectful. So, but yeah, I think mostly they come with their whole heart and they're so earnest and happy to be there and nervous and all the things. And so sometimes you can see, mis- this is the hardest, for me, this is the heartbreak that you can see mistakes being made because of nerves. Mm. Like, you know, they know, yeah. right? Like, and it's just like these little things that you're like, ah, grab the, and you can't, you can't say anything. And so, yeah, it's one of the hardest things. Like one of the hardest things I deal with at Chopped is like you win or die. And unless we're cumulatively judging at the end, right? Like if you make it to the end, you're judged on mm. everything you did for the day. But if you, if you don't, you are living or dying by one dish. And the hardest thing is like knowing someone's better than the dish they just put in front of you and wanting to see the next Mm. and knowing they can do well, but that dish just lost to the one next to it. That's the hardest thing. (laughs) How, what is your approach to, to giving constructive criticism? Um, there's, you know, we talk to them and there's what you guys need to know when you watch it. Right. So like there's general culinary feedback, this is what you missed. It needed this, it blah, blah, blah. And then a lot of times once that's, once we're sort of done with that part of it, I will do the like, all right, let's keep it real. Chef to chef, like here, like this, this should have been dialed up. This is where you missed it. You knew you did this. Like you could have allocated your time here, blah, blah, blah. Like brass tacks, like to have a real like chef to chef conversation with them. It's important if people win that they know why they won. And if they didn't win, it's really important that not just like, in the form of a show, but they're sitting in front of actual chefs, like that we have a real conversation about what didn't make it on the plate or why you're not making it to the next round. And and I think that sometimes makes it a little bit easier. It's like a, like, let's, let's keep it real conversation yeah. between chefs. And I think that's helpful. No, I think it's definitely helpful. Um, whether, I mean, whether it's, you know, a judge or a restaurant owner, what do you feel your most important role as a leader is? Whew, such a good question consistency Mm. above and beyond everything, right? Like that there is, and I I struggle with it. I'm a person that has emotions and I have feelings and um, when things are not the way they should be in my restaurants. um, And I know we're better than that. And I know that we're not operating at the level we should be operating at. My patience gets very thin. Mm -hmm. I'm not like a lunatic and I don't freak out, but I should learn to be more level and more regulated and show less frustration in that way, but also humanity, right? Like it's okay to see that someone gets frustrated. And mm-hmm. if I didn't show that, like, you know, it's it the expectation that like everything's fine and we can just behave or perform it kind of flatline is not acceptable either. So consistency one, fairness and equality, the hierarchy here is the job that you do and how well you do it. And that's the beginning and the end of it. Like whoever you are, you need to show up as your full self or else you're not going to be able to do the job that's in front of you to the best of your ability. And that hinders all of us. Like we have to bring our, you know, our A game and I, you know, it's cliche, but you can't do that if you're, you feel like you can't show up as yourself every day. Mm -hmm. So, and that the rules are the same for everyone, right? There's no like different rules and there's no, there's just no BS in my company. Like there's no dating 
in and out of like managers can't date people that they're managing. And we don't, we just don't do that. Like it creates an environment where people aren't sure if they're performing at the level they need to be as someone else is, is succeeding because of their relationships or succeeding because of their talent and their, their effort. So um, getting rid of all that BS is really, really important. And so making sure that the rule book is the same consistency and then also fun and imagination. Mm-hmm. I think creativity is really important too, that we keep our eyes on that and continue to push. That's awesome. Uh, well, it's been such a, a delight um, chatting with you. Um, so nice. Yes, and we're gonna we're we're gonna we're not done yet. We have a couple rapid fire questions for you, and then we have one final question that we ask all of our guests here on Food Network Obsessed. So, rapid fire round: favorite junk food? Gummy bears. Okay. Oh, no question. I love gummy bears too. Music you listen to in the kitchen? We don't. Oh, okay. Uh, we listen to either talk radio, is to a lot of NPR. Okay. Morning prep sometimes, but usually in the afternoon when we're prepping, we don't. Okay. We focus. Favorite Boston activity? Marathon Monday. Okay. Yeah. Like it's our holiday. Yeah. yeah. So everything shuts down. Not everything. Like the restaurants are open. Um, It's an 11 o'clock Red Sox game. The marathon Mm -hmm. starts in the morning. And then there's usually a third, um, not usually, there's always a third sporting event, whether it's a Celtics game or a hockey game at night. Um, And the city is like, everyone gets the day off except for restaurant people, obviously. <laughs> and it's just, the city's alive. It's just like, and it's also kind of like our in one day, like spring is coming. Yeah. Like we're getting out of this. So I love yeah. that. Uh, favorite motivational quote. The only way around is through. Oh, that's a good one. Um, if you weren't a chef, you would be a what? Lawyer. Lawyer. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, food network chef you would love to collaborate with. Oh, in what way? Like show or cooking? Um, either way, let's do both. I mean, I would love to cook with Ina always, mm, right? Oh like my who doesn't want to cook with Ina? <laughs> I want to go to her house for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> Ina, if you're listening, please. She doesn't know me at all, but I would love to go. <laughs> Girl, if you get an invite, you call, I'll call you. Call me okay, if you give me I'll my plus you. one. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> and then show-wise, there's a ton. Like I, I love Minnie. I would love to go traveling with Minnie. Like we mm. talk about doing a girls trip annually where we pick a different country to go to and eat. Uh, Scott, because we're just like, we're going to get each other fired one of these days. Like we just <laughs> don't stop laughing. Like that was, that was a relationship I did not see coming. Like we are such like, I think people would see us as very opposite people. We are like kind of two souls in a very, in very different, same soul, very different body. Okay. Um, a food you wish did not exist. Goat cheese. Really? Okay. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it anymore. Okay. We won't we won't make you talk about and that. I don't want to be judged for it. I had someone who was no. like, you should work on your palate. I was like, you should No. Everyone everyone has something. And it's okay. Chefs can it's have fine. things they don't like. Like go it's away. Okay. Yeah. It's okay. It's okay. Um, this is a safe place. <laughs> uh well, we have a final question, as I mentioned. So this is uh what would be on on the menu for your perfect food day. So we want to hear, you know, your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner, dessert. Um, There are no rules for this question. So obviously calories don't count. You can travel, you can time travel, you know, whatever you want. It's your day. Yeah, I know. It's fun, right? It's so fun. Breakfast would be a bowl of pho in Hanoi, Mm -hmm. in Vietnam. I would have like five breakfasts, obviously. Mm -hmm. Obviously. (laughs) And then a crab omelet in Thailand. Mm. And like duck noodle soup in Thailand. Okay. These are all breakfast foods in Asia. Yep. Lunch would probably be chili crab Mm. in Singapore. In Singapore. Mm -hmm. 
Which one? Where they're like, oh no, I guess it's chili crab and like the salt and pepper crab. Yeah, right? there's, I mean, crab, like all. It's just it. all the crab, all yeah. the crab. <laughs> and then at some point you're just like, and then you're wandering around food stalls just like eating nonstop. <laughs> so crab into like all the food stalls in Singapore. And then for dinner, I would do like Ginza style sushi, like, mm. like an omakase with extra caviar on everything. Okay. So, I love yeah. it. And then are you having dessert or? Uh, yeah, I enjoy dessert, like really incredible, thoughtful desserts blow me away, right? When mm-hmm. they're really balanced and great. And my pastry chef does an incredible job at them. But if you were to give me like a giant bowl of French fries with like, you know, <laughs> sour cream and caviar, I would just. I, I mean, that sounds pretty, pretty decadent. Yeah. So I think that 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 classifies. And and by the way, I said it. there's no rules. It's there's your no day. Rules. You you make the rules. So it sounds like a, a perfect food day for Tiffany, the champion of <laughs> Tournament of Champions. Congratulations again. Thank you. I had so much fun chatting with you and uh, so excited to to see you come back and defend that title. Yeah, I'm already nervous. <laughs> I'm like, can I just like take a Xanax now, please, for like a year? There you go. So, Jamie, thank you. It's been really, really fun. A huge congrats to Tiffany. If you have not had a chance, you can now binge watch the entire season of Tournament of Champions on Discovery+. Plus. Thanks so much for listening and make sure to follow us wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss a thing. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review. We love it when you do that. That's all for now. We'll catch you foodies next Friday.